Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in London today with Gordon Watson, who's the CEO of Virtu, and I've just, uh, we're actually at the headquarters, which are in Church Crookham. Is that right, Gordon? Yeah, we, we're based uh, about 40 miles southwest of London in the, the beautiful Hampshire countryside in what is a purpose-built facility. We've been here since the very beginning. It's extraordinary because you sort of, there's this, this wonderful sort of picaresque route through the tree-lined streets and you pass a couple of pubs and then there's this sort of futuristic building in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary, quite unique, I think, in the UK. I guess the only thing that I could compare it with would be uh, a Swiss watch manufacturer. It's a similar sort of setup to that. So how did the story arise that, uh, uh, that someone decided, and when was Virtu created? It was about 15 mm. years ago now. Yeah, it was. Um, well, it was back in 1998 that the Nokia board gave the go-ahead for this project. Um, and it was the base, brainchild of one of Nokia's senior designers, Frank Novo. Uh, and Frank had that eureka moment where he was sitting in his design studio in California. Uh, he was looking at his nice car in his drive, nice wristwatch in his wrist, nice pen on the table that he was sketching with. And he suddenly felt that the mobile phone he was using, which was a basic cheap plastic Nokia. Not a feature phone. <laughs> correct. Um, really could be done in a much better way. Hmm. So he started to evolve that idea of basically how and what you would build a phone with if price was no object. So that was the basis. So it wasn't set out to, to create a phone that was expensive just for the sake of being expensive. It was a case of looking at what materials and how would you construct this phone if money was no object? So from that, things evolved. The Nokia board gave the go-ahead for the project and the company has developed into what you see today. Well, was it a controversial idea at Nokia at the time? Uh, yes, I believe there were a substantial number of objectors, um, mainly because it was outside of their core business. But I think Frank had put together a very compelling proposition coupled with design work that he'd already been working on. And I guess there was the opportunity because it was feature phones that dominated the market then. So the whole materials and design proposition had more legs at that point in time. So the giveahead was gone. Uh, around that time, it was it was quite a strange idea. And I think the early users tend to be you know Arab sheikhs and um, Russian oligarchs. Uh, but of course, fast forward to today, the idea of luxury and technology being together is, is actually not such an unusual idea at all. When you look at Hermes and Apple and Samsung, uh, a number of players collaborating with luxury brands now. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. I mean, the, the best one probably is the Apple-Hermes collaboration, which for both parties really is a win-win. You have the combination of traditional luxury with Hermes, cutting edge technology with Apple. And I think both brands benefit greatly from that. For an independent brand like ourselves, we, we have to look at our entire product proposition and where back in 2000 or so, the materials story was probably enough to differentiate and give a point of difference. Yeah. It no longer is today. So we have to look at technology that is at the leading edge. 
So we work with people like Qualcomm, for example, to ensure that we're utilizing their latest flagship uh, chipsets, but also to, to make sure that that whole experience is, is reliable, is good, robust, and then the other elements that come into it, like services, and services will play a bigger part of, I guess, what you could term a small ecosystem going forward. I want to definitely come back to services, but one of the things that's always fascinated me about luxury technology is that in luxury, it's all about small quantities, handcrafted, um, you know, things being bespoke. But with technology, you need scale in order to get high-end innovation. And I think this was the challenge that, say, Aston Martin had, you know, before they had a, a kind of a the platforms to, to build on, like, you know, uh, the major competitors. Yeah. So how, how are you able to get cutting-edge technology without selling millions of units? Yeah. Well, I, again, I think this comes to having a robust business plan. So within these facilities, we have our sourcing team and we actually have separate sourcing offices based um, in key locations as well. But our sourcing team ensure that we have good, strong relationships with the key suppliers for our components. So for example, it's Qualcomm for, for chipsets. Um, they're arguably the, the world's finest manufacturer mm. and they like the association that we choose to work with them. Um, it gives them extra kudos, I guess, because you know we are making in small, small quantities, but we are making a really strong product proposition. Other good examples would be in Sapphire. Um, we've been one of the innovators in the use of Sapphire. Um, and if you think back in the day, Sapphire was only used on watch glasses. So the companies manufacturing it had very little experience of producing anything bigger than a watch glass. So we've challenged them and we've worked with them and we've now developed processes where we can make Sapphire now um, 5.5, 5.7 inches. So again, we, we are helping... Which even Apple could, couldn't manage to do for the last phone. No, absolutely. But we, we work very, very closely with our suppliers and we invest a considerable amount in R&D. And I guess that's one of the differences that we're able to challenge some of these guys about their own internal processes and they reap a longer term benefit from that as well. I guess that's the wonderful um, thing about modern day supply chains that you, you can find and source components and manufacturers and partners even though you're here in, 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 in sort of pastoral England. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that, that's where it comes down to having a competent team behind you. Yeah. You, you know, the guy that leads our sourcing team, uh, Dennis O'Donovan, has been involved in that industry and in electronics all his career. So he knows what he's talking about and he can really push the supply chain and challenge it. So let's talk a little about services. Um, uh, one of the earliest distinguishing features of the Virtu phones was the sort of the Ruby key that, you know, basically opened doors and there was someone there to help you, you know, do whatever you wanted to do. But of course, that idea now is becoming also more commonplace with um, you know, the changes on Facebook Messenger and the idea of building more concierge services in Siri. Yeah. So where do you see the future of, um, I guess, luxury service delivered through technology? Yeah. No, that, that's a really good question. It's, it's one that we, again, are challenging ourselves internally on. And today we have a very good product proposition with the Vertu Concierge. Um, which we support in seven languages. It's available globally 24-7. Um, great proposition. Um, but what we tend to see from that is high value and relatively infrequent use. 
which is fine up to a point. Um, we're challenged to grow our business. We want to bring more consumers. We want to have more usage of virtual devices and I see services as being the key driver for that. So we want to create a model that focuses not only on the high value, but bring more of the day-to-day -day element in. Right. And, and that can be through algorithms, artificial intelligence and so on, but also retaining that human touch for the top end element. Because I think it's key for the people that have grown accustomed to that too. They, they know their concierge managers, you know, they have a relationship with them the same way you would have a relationship with a PA. And we need to maintain that, but at the same time, make it easier for people that may not need to talk to a human being for the most simplistic things, so restaurant bookings, hotels, airline tickets and so on, stuff that they may not want to burden their PA with today, but don't have the time to take care of themselves. It's funny because, I mean, you know, especially for the next generation, they in many ways see that self-service is actually good service. Yeah. And it's, it's often faster to use OpenTable than it is to email someone tell them to make a, a restaurant booking, especially when they're making the booking using OpenTable anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, again, that's another good point. And I think when you look at that generation that has grown up utilizing apps, there are so many apps out there that, that do the same thing. Um, and how do you make the right choice? What we want to do is, is create almost like an application-based version of the Vertu Concierge, but you can be confident that it's going to deliver the right product proposition for your lifestyle instead of being relying on apps that you may or may not have used in the past. Right. So it brings more consistency to the experience. And then also you can bring the data from what it's learned about the customer as well. I think when we talked about before, you meant the possibility of some sort of you know, contextual suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the example that we were talking about was uh, location awareness. So that when you land a new destination, we can push you um, the hottest new restaurants, galleries, exhibitions, etc. So that's there on your device on arrival. And you know that it's just one click on the Ruby key that can gain you access to those. You can, you can click, speak to the concierge or message the concierge and everything will be taken care of booking wise. So we want to make it much more relevant in that respect. In the past, in a way, your access to some of these services came from the virtue of the fact that you're the kind of person that was willing to spend $10,000 on a phone afterwards. Uh, but do you think in the future that the data could be uh, bi-directional in the sense that uh, your behaviours will be something that uh, you can broker on behalf of other brands? You can say, this is an interesting person based on these activities, not just the fact they're willing to pay a lot of money. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a good opportunity there for... Um, some cross-branding activities. Um, you know, if I look at it today with Vertu Life, we have a number of curated um, events, um, access to restaurants, fashion shows, etc., that are hard to find. But we, we have actually scaled that as well to make it more relevant today. So as you go forward, you'll see more opportunities for sporting events, e even football, which you know, probably 10 years ago, somebody would be saying Vertu <laughs> shouldn't be associated with football. But we know that our clients enjoy sports and right. certainly big events are relevant to them. So why shouldn't we be able to access good offers for big sporting occasions and feed that through the devices? Is there a shifting segment then about who the luxury technology purchaser is? Who do you think you're going to... 
who are you aiming to talk to in the future? Like, what kind of person are they? Yeah, well, again, I think if you look at our existing audience today, we're pretty much the 35 to 45 plus a senior executive or self-made entrepreneur. Um, in the future, though, we need to be talking to a younger clientele. We need to be talking to the successful 25 to 35 years old, as well as the, the ones above that. And we will do that through differentiating. <laughs> I wish I was still in that well. category. <laughs> Unfortunately, I tipped into the other one. <laughs> yeah, but for us, that means we need to challenge ourselves again in terms of the, the platforms that we're using. So our next product launches, well design-wise, take consideration of, of appealing to a younger consumer. Please tell me you're not making a virtue selfie stick because... I'm definitely not. <laughs> I think I'd be highly disturbed. Yeah, no, definitely not. But I think, the, you know, there's opportunities in the, the wearables segment. Right. Um, because if you look at you it... You mean beyond just watches, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be an evolution of a watch. Um, for us, we're still at the concepting and ideas stage. But I think with our services proposition being accessed through that Ruby key, that in itself could bring a unique proposition to a wearable device, hmm. e even if it is a watch. You know, we could integrate the service element to the watch so that you still have access to it without your, your telephone. So it's ideas like this we, we believe we can really evolve and, and bring to market over the next few months. You're right, certainly when you start to integrate with you know, other providers. Like I was amazed to see that uh, Lufthansa and Ramoa are working together now to make yeah. electric lug, uh, 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 digital luggage essentially. Yes. And what makes it amazing is not so much the addition of digital to the bag, but the fact that they've built out the ecosystem to make that friction go away around yeah. travel. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I, again, I think it's another example of where they're thinking about the consumer and how can they make their life easier. Hmm. And that's what I want to bring into this organization. You know, I'm only three months in my role, so we know where we want to be by the end of the year. We're finalizing our roadmap until the end of 2018 now. But we need to put the consumer at the center of everything that we do and all of the innovations that we bring to market as well. One of the big challenges is that the, the real growth in your consumer base has actually been out of Asia. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's Chinese consumers that have really embraced, I guess, the Virtu brand. Yeah. Has it, has it been a surprise? Was it a surprise? To uh, yes and no. I think when you, you look at new forms of luxury, which Virtu was uh, when it was launched, the uh, pickup and acceptance of that in let's say areas where you know riches have been made more recently the acceptance there is much easier than in the historic traditional luxury markets you know people people are open to new ideas of luxury and and you can see that even in switzerland there's guys making belt buckles that sell for as much as our phones and everything and it's because of the the engineering and the craftsmanship that's uh, that's built into those so there is an acceptance in these markets of, of new luxury and new ideas do they use the service component or do they don't really have a contextual reference for, for, the, for a lot of those things uh, well in china the the concept of concierge is still in its infancy yeah um, so we we do have usage from our chinese client base primarily when they travel. And this is one of the things where we believe we can bring more relevance to the, the consumer 
for day-to-day -day usage. So again, China, for example, if you just look at uh, apps for, for cars in Beijing, I think you've got something like 35 apps that would cover Beijing alone. Yeah. So why can't we create our, our one app that looks after cars, catering, um, education, health, etc., and just you know amalgamate, if you like, the best of the service providers into the one place to make it much easier for the consumer to build that frequent usage and again yeah. it makes their life easier. So you, you would effectively almost create like a meta, a meta app yeah. That, that automates you know, some of the interactions with, with the other apps. That would be a good way of putting it, yeah. Right. But I think, again, from a consumer's perspective, we would be vetting the service providers that we use to ensure that they're relevant for the Vertu client because we, we cannot compromise on the levels of service. So, so could there be eventually, even foreseeably, a kind of an entirely virtual uh, Vertu experience where you're consuming the brand but you don't actually have any physical hardware at all? I don't know that we would get to that because I think for, for us the hardware is an intrinsic part of the experience. Mm. You know, the hardware itself is a sensual sensory <laughs> experience in its own right. You know, everything from the, the touch and feel of the leathers that we use to the, the sound that we've spent years perfecting um, through even to the smells of the leathers, you, you know, it appeals to the senses as well. And yeah. it, I think there will always be irrelevant for that. So we want to keep services directly linked to, to hardware. But I guess there's an analogy with car companies. I mean, they're, they're facing a similar conundrum in that um, people are using Uber you know, rather than buying a car. So they have to both improve the physical senses of the experience, but they also have to build apps to keep up uh, yeah. more frequent usage base. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, everyone has its place. I mean, for me, Uber would be the the service I would use if I'm in London for the weekend or whatever. But I love to drive myself, so I'm not going to give up car ownership because mm. I love the appeal of driving to, to my senses. I, I love the rush that you get when you can drive uh, fast within the limits of the law sort of thing. But you, you know, there's still a lot to be said for having that control yourself. Uh, so what? What's your sense then of how luxury is evolving? Um, do, you, do you see it changing in, in the way that we consume it, in the way we understand it, and, and I guess who it's aimed at in the, in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I, I think if you, you look at the markets just purely from a results perspective, you, you know, most luxury brands have suffered a downturn yeah. over the past 18 months or so. Mainly due to corruption laws changing in China. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and again, I think most brands are, are looking internally now and reassessing the, the products that they launch and bring to market. And I think there is a substantial shift. I mean, I just read over the weekend an article in Cartier who want to bring a, a new, younger consumer to their brand. Mm. And they've done that through launching a jewellery collection with a new entry level. Mont Blanc have done a similar thing on watches. So I think... You know, well, you're right. Montblanc really pivoted. They, they were about pens, and now really, they, they, you know, that's probably the least important part of their product offering. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they, they've turned themselves now into a complete lifestyle luxury brand mm. of sorts. Um, so I think everybody is reevaluating what they do, and certainly for, from a Vertu perspective, what we do today, we do well, but we need to broaden our consumer pool 
and it's really the, the younger generation that we need to pull through, the, the 25 to 35 years old, that are the, the people that are using social media most frequently, they're the ones that are using apps most frequently, they've probably got the, the busiest social life as well. So it's, those need to be our target audience and we need to provide the hardware that they like from a physical perspective, an ease of use that they enjoy as well, but also services that are relevant to their lifestyle as well. What do you think is the key to engaging them? I mean, traditionally with luxury consumer, it was about investing in the retail channel, about building sort of an amazing physical environment. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's relevant for this generation or do you think there is other ways that it need to be taken in order to hook them? Yeah, for the younger gener generation, I think it's it's less relevant. I, I, I believe what you do need is to have an omni-channel approach. So bricks and mortar will always play an important part of that. And we have 67 directly operated stores ourselves uh, yeah. globally. We have another similar number run by partners. And then if you add in the multi-brand uh, stores that we're present in, you're looking at a distribution of circa 400 doors. Um, but for the younger generation, we can see that uh, even bombarding them with adverts, advertising on social media is almost as likely to turn them off as it is to turn them on. Hmm. So I think you need to be far more subtle in your approach. Uh, and it's about building credibility via word of mouth and um, through in direct interaction with them as well. So. There are different elements and components and each one plays an important part. But certainly for me, bricks and mortar will, will always be there because it's only through bricks and mortar you can truly build that sensory experience around the brand. Hmm. But the other channels definitely help with the, the pull of, of bringing these younger consumers to you. It's, it's interesting how you, you saw other technology brands essentially copy luxury brands in building their retail environments. Uh, to the extent they even, I think they hired Angela yes. from Burberry, you know, uh, to run retail. But I mean, the, the the kind of the playbook that Apple's taken is lifted straight from LVMH and you know Hermes and other big luxury stores. Yeah, absolutely. And if you you look at Apple, they have done it incredibly well. You, you know, they've they've built these cathedrals to the the Apple brand in the key locations globally, and what they have is a truly immersive experience. You know, you go into an Apple store and you know exactly what you're going, going to get. Um, the experience is good, definitely. But they can see that they need that anchor in bricks and mortar to, to build the e-commerce sales and so on because people still want to touch and feel product. It's an important part. It doesn't really feel like they, though, that they, the Apple Watch was a complete success that you know, people anticipated. Um, where do you feel like they got it wrong? Like, like it just—it it feels like no one's really nailed watches yet as a category. Yeah, I, I guess you—you got to judge success by the numbers. Did they get it wrong in that they didn't sell as many watches as they did phones? Mm. <laughs> Difficult to say. They've certainly sold, sold a lot of watches. Yeah, they've sold more watches than the average Swiss watch brand over over the same time frame. Mm. So in that respect, it's been a huge success. Um, I don't think they've got it wrong at all. I think it's the consumer's perception of the usefulness that is still in its infancy. Right. You, you know, I have a 16-year-old son who, who loves technology and, you know, for Christmas he wanted an Apple Watch. 
he's had the Apple Watch. Does he wear it every day? No. For him, it's now found a niche in his life which revolves around his sports activities. And that's oh. when he uses it most frequently. So I think as far as watches and wearables is concerned, people are still finding and discovering for themselves where they fit in their lives exactly. So we haven't really discovered the killer app yet, you know, for wearables. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. And that's where I think there's there's opportunities for us in this area to experiment, especially on the services side, and, and see what we can deliver through a wearable device. Well, what are some of the potential use cases of a luxury wearable experience that you think could you know, resonate with consumers? Uh, you, you know, one that I believe in is uh, is health monitoring, right. um, where you know through the sensors etc. built into the device, which are then linked to an app. If you can have that directly then linked to a specific hospital or health service or organisation, so that your data is is totally being evaluated that becomes something unique instead of just looking at your phone or your pad and saying okay yeah my, my heartbeat was somewhat raised today it's actually taking much more positive action regarding that so that you you have somebody monitoring it that can pick up the phone or message you and say no we've noticed these irregularities we would suggest x y or z and i think it's this sort of thinking that can be more relevant today absolutely so, uh, as your son grows up, uh, making sure that he's asking for a Virtu rather than Apple uh, for Christmas, <laughs> what, 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 what do you think is going to capture his imagination? Um, I think it has to be the, the complete ecosystem. Right. I think at that age as well, there's a lot of peer pressure, <laughs> and quite honestly, I wouldn't trust my son with a Virtu phone today. Um, but as he grows up, yeah, it's, it's about making the ecosystem relevant to that consumer. I don't have the, the answer today on how we do that yeah. um, because he's still a little bit young for, for our target. Um, but certainly the feedback that I get from him and his peer group on the design of our de devices, they love it. They, they love the fact that we're using these almost space age materials, you know, sapphire, titanium, ceramics and so on. That really appeals to their senses. Um, what we need to do is make the brand more relevant from a service perspective and an ecosystem perspective for those kids as well. Do, do you think that perspective of your son and his friends is that different to someone of equivalent age growing up in China? Like, Do you think they have more in common or do you think that really service design will need to be a very cultural, locally engineered yeah. service? I think if you had to ask me a few years ago, I would have said they had, they had less in common. But I think today, because you can see this huge growth in the middle classes in China, that there is more in common than, than we imagine. Um, so I think it's a case of making sure that it's relevant for the specific market. So you, you can have geogra geographical specifics in there as well. But I think the general principles are going to be pretty much the same. Well, Gordon, it's a great pleasure having you on the show. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the brand, obviously. Uh, so uh, thank you, and uh, it was great to meet you. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as well. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>